This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 277, an interview with Melissa Amatiz about her book, Nebraska POW Camps, A History of World War II Prisoners in the Heartland. The author of numerous articles, ranging from women war correspondents to war dogs to how the U.S. War Department used a loophole to expose POWs to Democratic propaganda. Melissa, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a um, wonderful opportunity. Excellent. I'm, I'm so glad that you're here uh, because, one, I've reached a point in the storyline where the United States is into the war, and so obviously P, uh, access POWs will be coming up. But mostly, as much as I've read about World War II, I haven't taken the time to learn about how the war affected those who stayed behind in America. And your book was a wonderful window into that world in terms of POW camps and how the locals were affected. So, But before we jump in, if you could just take a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself and how this book came about. Sure. Um, I actually went to uh, graduate school um, at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln. I started my program in 2002, and I actually was focusing on an entirely different subject. <laughs> I was going to do um, women of the American Revolution and French Revolutions. I was going to do comparative research. And my advisor at the time said, well, you know, you're going to have to learn the French language to really do research. And I had a two-year-old home at the time. (laughs) I thought, you know, (laughs) that's not going to happen. (laughs) So I had had always been interested in World War II. And Mm. when I was in um, undergraduate school, I worked um, one of my summer jobs was at Fort Robinson in um, northwest Nebraska, which has been a fixture on the Great Plains for years and years. And they had a POW camp there. Oh. So um, I switched gears and decided to do my dissertation on that and um, got a new advisor, a very um, wonderful um, Holocaust historian who took me on. Mm-hmm. And I focused on that, um, the intellectual diversion program at Fort Robinson, which was the, U- and which we'll talk about later, the, um, the U.S. military's re-education program. And a few years after I graduated, I was hunting around for some freelance work, and I approached this publisher, and I said, hey, are you looking for any, you know, freelance um people right. to, you know, work on back covers or whatever. They got back to me and they said, actually, with your history, would you like to write a book for us on the POW camps in Nebraska? And I thought, 
well, I'd always wanted to turn this into a book and this was the perfect opportunity. So um, they wanted me to focus on all of the camps and I had just done research on Fort Robinson. So that gave me the opportunity to canvas all of Nebraska, which was kind of daunting, but it was, I also welcomed it because this is history that had not been uncovered. Sure. So that's how it happened. Okay. So the first question, I guess, should be is, how did these prison camps get started in the United States? Well, back in um, 1942, I believe it was, the I mean, we'd only been in the war about a year, but Great Britain had been at war with um, the Nazis since um, 1939. Mm. And they had already amassed quite a large amount of prisoners. And so they asked us for help, and they said, would you be willing to house take on about 50,000 prisoners. And we were like, well, yeah, we can probably do that. But it kind of snowballed and we ended up having um, around 425,000 access PWs here in the United States. So it went from 50,000 to 425,000. And so that was, but they, you know, they just couldn't hold all of them. So we agreed to help. That makes sense. Uh, I do, obviously, yes. America is a lot larger than the UK. But so I do have to ask oh, the, yes. follow, the follow-up question is, how or what was the response of the American people to all of this? Well, I mean, I think there was, there was trepidation at first, of course. Um, in some of my research, even in Nebraska, I found that when they wanted to put a prisoner of war camp near a community, people were very upset at this and didn't want it to happen. Um, nationally on the national level, once the camps were, um, you know, once the prisoners arrived and the Americans saw that they were being treated really well, they got very upset. Um, they started calling them the Fritz Ritz, you know, after the Ritz hotel where they, they, yeah, they thought they were getting really classy treatment. And, um, and there were some incidents where um, people who had loved ones in the service or who were who had been killed or something would mm-hmm. go up to the fences of these camps and just, you know, yell at the prisoners who were outside because they thought, you are over here and it's a nice, safe environment while my boy or my husband or is over there fighting in this horrible war and you're getting pampered while he might, you know, he's suffering all these horrible things. So... This actually became so pronounced that um, the government decided to launch an investigation, and they looked into whether or not the prisoners were being pampered, and the conclusion was that no, they were not. They uh, Instead, we were just treating them humanely, right. and we were following the Geneva Convention. It, it was um, a whole lot of hullabaloo over nothing, but uh, you know, in hindsight, we can understand because you know, American POWs, especially in Japan, were being treated horribly. And in Germany, they were treated better than in Japan, but still not nearly as well as we treated, um, you know, the Axis POWs here. So it was understandable how they felt. And also, I'm sure it was very disconcerting to have, you know, the enemy here in America and, you know, right, you know, next door, pretty much in some areas. I mean, there was these POW camps are sometimes built with, you could see, um, I have photos where there's farms just right on the outskirts. So, you know, it was, it was very, became a very intimate part of many Americans' lives. 
that makes sense. I mean, it's all too human for the Americans to be upset. Yeah. You know, the bad guys are here. They're just, you know, a stone's throw away. That, that absolutely makes sense. Mm-hmm. Now, I know in your book that you focused on the POW camps in Nebraska, and you've already mentioned mm-hmm. the, I think, the overall number of just over 400,000 POWs yes. that's going to be in America. But can you give us an idea of some of the numbers of the camps in that state and um, who some sure. of the prisoners were in Nebraska? Yes. So we held um, Italian prisoners of war and German. And, of course, uh, the German army was comprised of not just ethnic Germans, but also of a lot of the other um, countries that they had invaded. Um, There were Polish uh, soldiers. There were, I mean, they were all different sorts, Mm -hmm. Austrian, um, Hungarian, whatever. Um, But we held, we did not hold any Japanese POWs in Nebraska. Um, and besides, you know, um, Japanese POWs were very minimal because, of course, you know, um, the Japanese code was not to be taken prisoner as that was a sign of shame. So there wasn't a lot of POWs taken in Japan. But in Nebraska, we had probably, and I don't have, the, the, the really frustrating part about researching some of this stuff is that the files simply don't exist. Mm. Um, you know, there was a lot of, uh, for some camps, I had tons and tons of files to go through. For others, there was just, you know, very, very few. And some, there was none at all. So to give you an accurate count is pretty much impossible, but I can make a good guess. And I would say there was probably 10 to 12,000 POWs in Nebraska. We had um, three base camps, which were the, the main camps. And then later on, we built 21 satellite camps as part of the labor wow. program, which we can talk about in a bit. Okay. Uh, I, I guess, should I not be surprised about the the lack of quality of records for some camps? Because I imagine once this is all over with, all that paperwork just gets stuck somewhere and it's like, okay, the war's over, the prisoner stuff is over, we don't want to think about it anymore? Or do they just file it away exactly. somewhere? Exactly. Oh, okay. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, and then there was also um, a fire in the National Archives at one oh. time that destroyed a lot of records. And, but yes, I mean, uh, with the Korean War, you know, so quickly on the heels of World War II, we just kind of, okay, we forgot about it exactly as you said, yeah. you know, this part is over, now we're on to the new war. And as a historian, that's so frustrating um, because I'm like, well, that's, this was a really significant event in American history. But, you know, when you've lived during that time and you don't typically have that perspective of, I need to save all these files. And um, so, yes, a lot were lost, and it is very frustrating, but not not too surprising. Exactly. So, so there's a lot of people there besides the um, the uh, Italians of uh, Mussolini or the the Germans of mm-hmm. Hitler. Um, but mm-hmm. I, I was out of and again out of all the different parts of your books that I enjoyed very much. I was a little surprised that the U.S. officials didn't bother to learn about some of the POWs nationality or whether they were um, strong Nazi members or just someone who may have been conscripted. You would, you would think that the American authorities would want to know that, but I guess a POW is a POW. Yes, that's pretty much it. Um, I think the program, we weren't really enthusiastic about it. Right. So we didn't um, put a lot of thought into it. And, you know, we had thoughts of re-educating them as early as 1943, and that was put on the shelf because we thought, well, you know, it's not going to work. And, you know, we, 
I think they knew that the Nazism might be a problem in the camps, but they, you know, didn't, I don't think they, they really thought all of this through enough. And it was kind of a, a trial by fire. You know, you learn as you go. And so as things continued to happen in the camps with the Nazism and the clashes between nationalities and things, then it came to a head. And again, it happened because um, it became national news. These incidents were going on in the camps, oh. which we can talk about in a little bit, too. Um, so, yeah, it, it it just and I don't know that we really distinguished between a German and a Nazi. In the the propaganda of the time, it was all, you know, every German was a Nazi and that we didn't make a difference between the two. But, you know, um, reality is and is a lot more nuanced than that. There was lots of different ideologies going on. There were some that were conscripted against their will. There were some that were very, very ardent supporters of Hitler. There were some that were like, well, I'm fighting for my fatherland. You know, I'm fighting for my country. And they didn't really have a a stake in things. So when you put all of that together, um, it created quite a, um, <laughs> a powder keg. Yeah. Yeah. I, I got the sense from your book that one, and, and I mean this with all due respect to the authorities at the time, but one, they were figuring it out as they went along. Maybe they, the Americans, mm-hmm. I don't know if they were being naive or whatever, but they just figured they could throw them all into camp and all that mattered was that they stayed in the camp, but there was a lot of internal division that I guess they yes. just weren't anticipating. Um, I, I do want to, I'm sorry, did you want to follow up with that? Um, well, I did want to say one thing um, yeah. and that um, I think sometimes, well, a, a lot of the times um, now that the, the prisoners could um, and did elect spokesmen for them, oh. for the, you know, for them. And they were usually um, Nazis, Um, Mm -hmm. and the camp commanders didn't mind this because it meant that things would be kept orderly, and there wouldn't be any disturbances and things. And so they were just kind of like, okay, we know this guy is, you know, really pro-Hitler and a Nazi, but he's keeping things in check around here Mm -hmm. and not giving us any issues. So we're just kind of you know, kind of um, sweep this under the rug and not really worry about it, which again, backfired on them. But so I think they were aware of what was going on, but they're like, Hey, you know, they're, this is their military and we're just guarding them. You know, we're not trying to change hearts and minds that didn't come until later. Uh, I I guess that uh, that makes sense. If you're the one that's in charge of the camp, your number one priority is no trouble, no drama, as long Mm -hmm. as whatever it takes to keep the camp calm, that's what I get paid for. And let's face it, the camp commanders don't want to get in trouble with the authorities either. So I guess it worked out. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. if I could, if we could just deviate for a second, because even though this was a small part of your book, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it because just as we're trying to learn how to deal with these um, prisoners, they've got to come over here and they get to see firsthand things about America, which their government was obviously you know, telling them lies about. If you could just for a moment yes. uh, describe the reactions of some of the prisoners as they hit, head inland from places like New York and Virginia after they get off whatever ship and then they have to be loaded onto trains or trucks and, and moved inland. Mm-hmm. 
Well, they were astonished that, you know, the skyscrapers in New York were still standing. <laughs> that because, you know, the propaganda had been telling them, oh, we've, we've leveled American cities and things. And it's like, no, you haven't touched us. Um, <laughs> and they were also just astonished at how big the United States was. Mm. Um, one of the prisoners who was held at Fort Robinson when he came um, over and he got on the train, he thought, well, in case I need to escape and figure out my path back to the coast, I'm going to write down every town we go through. Well, he had a humongous list of towns by the time (laughs) that they made it to Crawford, Nebraska. And he didn't even bother attempting to escape because, I mean, we're, you know, he was right in the middle of this huge country and getting to the coast was, you know, going to be, virtually impossible. So he didn't even bother to try. So they were just astonished at how large the country was. And I think it gave them a lot of pause about, you know, well, we were told this, but here's the reality right before our eyes. What do we believe? You know, and I, and I, I hope, and I don't have any firsthand knowledge of this, but I hope it opened up some of their eyes to thinking, Hey, maybe what we've been hearing for all these years is not correct. Right. If they lied about that, maybe the government has lied about other exactly. things and start thinking for yourself. Yes, yeah, so that would obviously be yes. a plus for the Americans to have them understand what they're what they're dealing uh, with. So, so these prisoners come mm-hmm. for them. The war is over, um, but I still imagine. Um, they get to the camps and there's a period of anxiety. There's there's an adjustment going on, and. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and after the POWs calm down, I mean, they are they do have daily routines or they're given daily routines. So like you were yes. saying earlier, the camps aren't that bad. Could you give us an idea oh, of, no. of their conditions? Oh, they were, I mean, it was idyllic compared to, I mean, being in war. They When they got here, they were issued, um, they basically had all the comforts of home. They were well-fed. They had clean clothes to wear, showers, a nice comfy bed, um, and they even had a canteen where they could buy sweets and soda pop and crackers, um, and they could even buy paper, pens, toothpaste, tobacco, ridge blades, all these types of things. And they had unlimited, you know, cold and hot water. I mean, you wouldn't get that out in the field. So (laughs) I've seen a lot of... um, photos of captured POWs and they're just grinning from ear to ear. Now, you know, maybe they're just hamming it up for the cameras, but I like to think that they're like, well, Hey, I'm getting out of here and going to a nice comfy place. And they really did, which is why a lot of, you know, Americans were like, Oh, you're being, they're pampering prisoners. But no, it was just, as I said, they were being, we were treating them humanely and they had so many activities that they could do. They had, um, like, um, at Fort Robinson, they had a wood shop um, where they could make things. They did art. Um, in fact, a very um, small collector, uh, there's a lot of collectors that really like POW camp art. So this is art that is created by um, prisoners of war. Oh. And they are on, you know, there's some museums here in Nebraska that have a lot of displays of those. And so, yeah, they they had a library. They could take classes. They could take classes in history and English and economics. They even, the German government even made it possible that they would get college credit when they came back in German universities from taking these courses. So, um, and they, they had orchestras, they had bands, they put on theater productions. Um, they went and played soccer, I mean, or football, you know, German football. 
Um, the uh, Italian POWs loved bocce ball, which is an old um, Italian bowling type game. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, yeah, they were kept very busy. And then, of course, they had duties too. They could work in the gardens or at Fort Robinson. They, uh, it, it was a remount um, depot, so a lot of horses to take care of. So the POWs would work over there, and they also had um, the canine corps there. So the POWs definitely were kept busy, and that was because they, you know, idle hands, you know, (laughs) would create mischief and wanted to keep them busy. And so they were never without things to do. But, of course, you know, you are still behind barbed wire, and you are still in a prisoner of war camp. And so there was still, you know, it wasn't – you know, the idyllic paradise that, you know, some Americans thought they were, you know, giving the POWs, but it was still, it was very, they were, you know, very well, um, they were very well taken care of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I guess for the American authorities, the important thing is that they're not in the war fighting anymore. So we can certainly yes. treat them humanely. And like you said, you keep them busy, they can't cause any trouble. So it's, it's best for both sides. Yes, exactly. So I'm guessing being at least a thousand miles inland, maybe not being able to speak this to, to speak the language in, in the prison garb. I'm guessing there wasn't a lot of escape attempts made uh, from these camps in Nebraska. No, there wasn't. I mean, there was a few, um, but they never got far, and they were right. always rounded up fairly quickly. Um, I did run across a story where. Um, Two guys from made, from Nebraska made it all the way to New York, which was quite a feat. Wow. Um, but they were rounded up, and they were not sent back to, to Nebraska, but to some other camps. Um, actually, in all of the United States, there were really only two successful escape attempts. And one of them was found in 1953. <laughs> and, or, and yes, and then the other gave himself up in 1985. Oh my God. So when you can, yeah, when you consider that there was over 420,000 POWs kept here and only two successfully escaped, that's a pretty astounding record. Yes. So, um, I think, like I said, that a lot of that went into the things, uh, you know, we're in the middle, we're in the United States. It's not easy to get back <laughs> to the coast. Right. Um, and why would you want to leave when you have plenty of food to eat and things to do in your you know, safe and comfortable from the war. So the one part of your book that I very much enjoyed, because again, this was a glimpse into the heartland of America during the war. If you could tell us about some of the interactions between the POWs and the locals, because it's not just the locals at the fence screaming at the prisoners. There there was actually, right. I guess, opportunities for them to leave the camps. Oh, yes. Um, in the fall of 1943, um, the labor program got underway with um, the the POW camps. And it's because we had all these men off fighting and there was a huge labor shortage in the United States, and especially when it came to farming. So um, we decided that we had this, this free labor right here that we could use. And so they set up these, um, you know, all these terms and, of how a farmer would have to apply to get POWs to come work on his farm and things like that. And at first when they started going out and that's why they built um, all these different satellite camps from Uh. these base camps. So they would be closer to the agricultural needs. So like, for example, um, 
the Fort, uh, the camp at Scott's Bluff, which is in the Panhandle of Nebraska, one of their satellite branches was Bridgeport, which is my hometown. And my grandfather, who was um, an Italian, um, would drive the pickup into town, and the POWs were held at the fairgrounds in Bridgeport. And he'd pick up some POWs and then drive them back to the farm. And they all spoke Italian to each other. Wow. And it was like this all over Nebraska, not only for the Italians, which the Italians were only kept in Scott's Bluff, um, but the Germans, because there's a large um, German population here in Nebraska. So a lot of people would, you know, get the German POWs and they would be able to talk and converse in German. And I think, you know, they had a shared culture and a shared language. And at the beginning, I think there was some trepidation, you know, oh, I'm the enemy is going to be out working on my farm or whatever. And so they would usually, you know, be under heavy guard for a bit. But then regulations tended to relax. And there is one of my favorite stories is there's a, from the Fort Robinson POW camp is they were going, the POWs were on the pickup getting ready to go out and they had to help the sergeant into the the truck. So the sergeant handed the POWs his gun and they hoisted <laughs> him up into the truck and then gave him his gun back. That's, nice. I mean, that's just, yeah, that's just kind of indicative of, of, they weren't going anywhere. They weren't, you know, it was just a very easy relationship between everybody. It was, there are other stories I've heard is, you know, the guard is out sleeping somewhere while the POWs work. <laughs> um, so they knew they weren't going anywhere right. and they didn't want to. Um, and then a lot of farm families, there were some regulations that said you can't feed or talk to the POWs. You can't have them in your home or whatever. And I got a letter from a, a woman who said, oh, my mother, you know, invited them in for lunch every day and fed them. And we'd just sit around the table and talk. Wow. So... There was, and then of course, when they put on theater productions, they invited the townspeople, mm-hmm. or if they had band concerts, and then townspeople would also donate things to the camps: board games, books, magazines, um, instruments, things like that. So there was this really easy relationship um, between. Once they got over that fear and they realized, hey, these are not the fanatical you know, horrible, you know, people that the propaganda posters have been warning us about and the films and all that, then it was, they realized they're just human beings. And like I said, there were, of course, the Nazism was still prevalent, but for a lot of these, these, um, German soldiers, it was not, they didn't really talk about that that much. Uh, It was not a big deal to them, but which it was later on in the camps though. I imagine a lot of that goes back to the way they were treated in the camp. No matter what your government tells you, once you're in the camp, you've got it pretty good. You've got amenities, you've got stuff like that. And so if they had mm-hmm. been treated a lot harsher, I imagine escape attempts or, or maybe hurting a local might have been more um, common. But just, I guess, the way they were treated, uh, they returned that decent treatment in kind. And like you said, they were could speak the same yes. language. So share things. Yes, yes, yeah. that's. That's absolutely right. And it amazes me that even years later, um, some of them came back. They came back to America to live. Oh, my goodness. And to me, I mean, that's just not something. Or they came back 
for reunions. Right. Um, Fort Robinson, like in the eighties had a reunion and these, these German POWs, they came back with their wives and their kids and, you know, they went and toured the grounds and said, Oh yeah, you know, I went and did that over there or whatever. And, and they were happy to be back. Now, I don't think that we would, you know, like a, um, uh, someone who was held by the Japanese would want to go back and say, oh, yeah, this was a great place to be. It just right. was completely different. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses. Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Yeah. Um, so so the locals and the POWs, or at least some of the POWs, I don't want to say all of them, certainly figure out a way to get along and there and there's no drama as far as um what I as far as what I read in your book. But of course everything mm-hmm. can't be paradise. Um I imagine like because right. you, you were saying this earlier, there is tension in the camps between the diehard Nazis and the and the non-Nazis. Mm-hmm. And eventually the government, uh, the, I guess the U.S. authorities is going to figure this out and they're going to have to somehow deal with this issue. Yes, exactly. Um, there was um, – it, it, was, it was tough for a lot of the guys that were in there who were not ardent Nazis mm-hmm. because just even little things – could get them killed. Um, wow. There was there was violence, there was beatings, intimidation. Um, so problems ranged from harassment, like you know, if if somebody refused to sell cigarettes to an anti to an anti Nazi person, or beating a POW up for something as simple as reading and translating American newspapers. Right. So it just um, what they initially did was they tried to segregate the Nazis from the anti-Nazis within the camp compounds, uh, and then that then there were some that were more dangerous. I mean, these were the you know really ardent Nazis, and so what they did is they transferred a lot of them out of these camps, and they ended up a lot of them in Camp Alva, Oklahoma, mm-hmm. um, and that's they figured well if we get all of them in one but, you know, we can better control things, but that didn't really work either. So the, um, the war department decided that they needed to try and reeducate or denazify these guys. And it was, um, quite the ordeal because the Geneva convention said that 
prisoners could not be subject to propaganda. Uh, well, what they would be doing is if they tried to, you know, interject American democracy and democratic ideals and American history into these POWs, that's, you know, the German government would see that as propaganda. Sure. And then they could potentially retaliate against um, our guys that were held there in Germany. So what we did is we did it, we kept it top secret, but we just kind of changed the wording. <laughs> so instead of re-education, we called it um, the intellectual diversion program, and we called it that because Article 17 of the Geneva Convention said, "So far as possible, belligerents shall encourage intellectual diversions and sports organized by prisoners of war." So what we did was we just did a you know, sly change of word, and um, the intellectual diversion program was born. And basically what it did is we had, we just taught the, the um, and these were not, um, we offered these classes, but they were not, um, you didn't have to go. Sure. But there were so many that were like, you know what, I'm interested, I'm bored, you know, let's, let's go and learn about American history or American government or, you know, things like that. And it really started to make a difference. There was um, Wolfgang Dorschel was his name. He was he became the camp spokesman at Fort Robinson after the, the other one who was a very rabid Nazi after he was um, sent away. Mm-hmm. And he organized a pro-democracy group where you could get together and discuss these ideas of democracy, which if you had tried to do that, if a Nazi was in control of the camp, you could, you know, potentially lose your life. Right. So he really became a proponent of this uh, program and he went um, to um, Mount Rushmore and there's a, there's a picture of him, which I was unfortunately not able to include in the book, but he's standing in front of, of Mount Rushmore and he's saying, this is, you know, the face of democracy and America really impressed him. And he really helped, um, those at Fort Robinson to, you know, open their eyes to American democracy and how, you know, Nazism was, was poison. And so this program was enacted all across the United States and it was top secret until the war ended um, with Hitler. Right. And then it was basically like, okay, this is what we've been doing. <laughs> the <whole> time. <laughs> um, unfortunately it's, um, they didn't really, this was kind of frustrating for me, is, is they didn't know how well this program worked. I mean, we could look long-term because, you know, our whole ideal was we want, you know, the new Germany to be a democratic one. Yeah. And um, if we can, you know, accomplish that, then the world will be a safer place. This war will, you know, we have will, we will have done something. Mm-hmm. But it just, we, they, we kind of lost sight of, you know, how well is how well we did with this program because, you know, the Korean War came up and, you know, it just kind of got lost in the shuffle. But I tend to think that it was probably a success because I think a lot of um, you know, especially those Germans who came back to live here. Yes. Um, recognized what the amazing opportunity this country gave them and you know, in the future um, for their kids or families, whatever. I mean, they all had to go back after the war 
and then when they wanted, if they wanted to return, they had to find, um, you know, somebody to sponsor them. So a lot of times it was a farmer they had worked for or somebody who had owned a business that knew them who could vouch for them and say, yes, I'll sponsor him while he's here. And, and then they stayed and, you know, became citizens. That's incredible. That's yeah. It was the one thing that I really took away from your book. Well, many things, but one thing I really took away was you do get a glimpse, especially if you're not an American, you do get a glimpse of small town America, the mentality, the the, mm-hmm. sim- the simple ways. Which I, I grew up like that, and it just reminded me of a simpler time. It's like if you do ba- fair by me, I'll do fair by you, and we can get along. And 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 to go from a POW yeah. to someone who's being sponsored, that's a heck of a transition. Oh, it absolutely is. And um, I know of, um, there's a Kimmel Orchards in Nebraska City, which is the home of Arbor Day. Um, he, one of the prisoners um, worked there when he was held here. And then when he came back, he was sponsored by the owner of the Kimmel Orchard, and he went back to work for him, became the manager, and then he eventually bought okay. the whole place. Right. So there's this German POW, you know, who had this, you know, he came here to work as a prisoner and then he comes back and buys the place where he works at and lives for the rest of his life. And I mean, to me, that was just an extraordinary story. I'm like, you know, that just wouldn't have happened with, <laughs> you know, one of our boys going back to Germany and saying, well, I'm going to buy this place because right. I had such a great time living in this POW camp. <laughs> oh, my God. No. After the war, when they went back home, there mm-hmm. was a lot of deprivation, you know, Germany was just severely hurting and they would write letters back to people they had known in these small towns or, you know, the pastors or ministers at the camps and ask for food and things like that. And the people responded and sent them care packages and things. So I think it was just an amazing, um, achievement overall that, uh, an amazing experience that both sides got to see that, you know, this is not the enemy that we were led to believe. Um, They're just human beings with, you know, different thinking, obviously. And, you know, some, there were some Nazis that never changed. Sure. Um, They, you know, remain Nazis the rest of their lives, but a lot of them, you know, were not. And they came to embrace um, American democracy and its ideals. I have to ask, and I'm going off memory here from your book, so so bear with me, mm-hmm. but if I remember correctly, the POW, the officers, were not required, was it, was it, they weren't required to do labor or take classes? I'm trying to remember. No. Okay. No, they were not required. No. Um, it was an incentive, actually, they were paid, the not the officers, but just the regular men were uh, paid in canteen coupons. So they made 80 cents a day in canteen coupons, which they could use to buy magazines or, you know, treats or pop or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they could also have that money stored up and saved. And then when they left, they could, you know, get that money. Wow. So they didn't work for free, but I think a lot of them wanted to work because otherwise you just stay behind barbed wire all day. Yeah. And yes, you may have had plenty to do, but you know, after a while, I mean, here was this opportunity to go out and see this, you know, new land mm-hmm. and do some work. And, and so a lot of them did choose to do that. 
Gotcha. And 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 again, I'm going off memory. As far as getting mm-hmm. around the Geneva Con- Convention, the very brilliant, subtle changing of the words of what their program was. Mm-hmm. I, and I'm and I apologize, but did Eleanor Roosevelt have something to do with that, or am I getting my books mixed up? Um, no, I think there was. I actually um, found out later in my research that. They're not completely sure that Eleanor Roosevelt spoke to FDR about uh, getting this program started, mm-hmm. but it it was in you know this the whole um, the battle between the Nazis and the anti Nazis did become um, something of a you know national you know oh we got to do something about this right it you know there was magazine articles and things like that um, but yeah which is it's always where it was such a big deal, and then it's like we promptly forgot about it you know, right. two years later, which is just kind of amazing to me. But, you know, that's that's what happens with history is we just, you know, kind of move on. And that's the great thing about being a historian is you can, you know, keep it alive and educate people. And one of the best things about going out and speaking to groups of people is that I always, always – have people come up to me and say, I remember when the German POWs came and worked on my farm, or I remember my dad going to pick them up, or I remember one of them gave me a piece of candy one day. You know, they just, they remember these so well. Because it was, I mean, it was, I I can imagine being a child, you know, and all of a sudden there's these (laughs) German prisoners of war working on your farm, you know. Um, That would definitely stick out in your memory. So, yeah. Some of the images, uh, memories that I have from your book is, um, and, and I'm probably getting them all confused, but there's like POW sitting at someone's kitchen table sharing a meal when they're yes. not supposed to be there mm-hmm. or listening to the radio. I think they weren't supposed to do that either. Uh, I just find yes. that incredible. And and not that I, I, and I do have to ask, based on everything you just said, could you please remind us what the motto is of the state of Nebraska? Well, that has changed. Oh, has it? <laughs> it oh. Gets, yeah. It, okay. Yeah. It, but we're known for Nebraska, the good life. Right. That was our motto for years. And I I feel like it's still our model, even though, you know, um, lately, our um, last year, they changed it to Nebraska. It's not for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It made national news because <laughs> it was just, you know. Um, so kind of astonishing, but yeah, for years it was, um, Nebraska, the good life. And I really believe that's why I ended my book with that, because I really believe that the POWs experienced the good life here in Nebraska. And there's, you know, I've lived in Nebraska my entire life. I've traveled a lot. I've been overseas and there really is something about the Midwest. Nice. I mean, we, we're just generally nice people here. Um, not all of us, that's a generalization, but, um, I, I really do believe that during the war and, you know, with this experience with the POW camps, we really, you know, did a good thing. Right. Yeah. Oh uh, yeah. You can absolutely tell from the book that again, how do you measure this kind of thing? I don't know if there's a way to just sit down and hear some stats, but when people come back, when Germans or Italians come back to the place that held mm-hmm. them captive, you probably did a decent job and treated them humanely. Yes. So yeah. Yes, if, exactly. And there was one other question. Um, 
when when the book starts out, or, or early on in the book, you talk about all the paperwork that the farmers had to go through um, to yes. be able to borrow labor, if, if if you will. Now, again, the German, mm-hmm. uh, the American authorities were quite nervous about this. They weren't sure how it's going to turn out. I know there was a lot of paperwork. Do you have an idea? And feel free to speak on that. But did you do you have an mm-hmm. idea? of what it took for, if I was a German POW, I went back home, I saw the misery, and I wanted to come back to America. I wonder if the paperwork Mm -hmm. to come back was equally daunting, or is that what the sponsors were for? I think it was probably daunting, but as I also believe that the sponsors made a great deal of difference. Right. Um, It usually took a couple years, and, you know, everything was just a mess over there, of course. Um, so I don't know of any that came back probably, I mean, latest, maybe late 1940s. Mm-hmm. So it, it took a while, but I think a lot of them probably came back um, in the early 1950s. Um, yeah, I don't I don't really know about, you know, what the paperwork would be like if they'd have to do that. But to me, I'm just amazed that they did it at all. Right. And, you know, I, I wish I had figures on how many German POWs came back to live in the United States because it's it's not a small sum. I mean, sure. there was quite a few. Wow. Well, I, I imagine with small town uh, mentality that just having a sponsor, some American willing to stick out their hand and shake someone's hand and go, I vouch for this person probably would have went mm-hmm. a long way. I mean, that's just how small towns operate. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's exactly right. Yeah. Well. Melissa, thank you very much for your time, and thank you very much for your book. I certainly encourage everyone to check it out. It's Nebraska POW Camps, A History of World War II Prisoners in the Heartland. Melissa, again, just thank you for your time, and and thank you for this book. Oh, thank you so much, Ray. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Absolutely. And, And one last question. Where can people follow you at? I know you're on Twitter. I wasn't sure if you were anywhere else. Um, I'm just on Twitter. Um, I do have a Facebook page for um, the Nebraska POW camps, um, which is just you can search by Nebraska POW camps. Um, right. Twitter, I'm at uh, World War II History Gal, WW2 History Gal. Right. Um, and then I do have a website, MelissaAmatees.com. Excellent. So, yeah, everybody, please, uh, for those of you on Twitter, check it out because there's a lot of interesting things. And and I think it's funny that like you, I myself, a lot of my life is determined by my children and my pets. But I guess that's Mm -hmm. that's the way life is. Right. (laughs) It is. <laughs> well, yes, I, I tweet a lot of photos of my dog and my cat and um, <laughs> how they kind of always interrupt my research and are laying on my books or whatever. <laughs> yes. Nebraska <laughs> But they're life. like family, you know. Exactly. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you very much again. You're welcome. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.